Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. All right, so we're in a series called Coached by the Greats, and we're, the basic premise of this is that we have this fan base looking down on us, cheering us through life. And Hebrews 12 puts it this way. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And I I look at that verse and I go, that is just so stinking cool. To think that Abraham and Peter and Paul and Mary, the older version of those, and my grandparents and, you know, other friends who have gone before me are looking down and they're cheering for me. They're encouraged. They're clapping whenever I, I do something good. And when I'm discouraged, they're, they're praying and interceding and, and encouraging me to try to get through that. And it's, and it's not, it's none of this, you know, we, I've been to way too many soccer games. I love soccer, but I've been going to a lot of them lately. And, and, you know, it's none of the fans booing. It's none of the yelling at the refs. There aren't any refs to yell at in this. This is just the epitome of positive fans looking down on us. And our premise of this series is we're looking at some of the greats of the faith mentioned in Hebrews 11 and throughout the Bible. And we're asking the question, what if they came out of this cloud of witnesses? What if they came out of the stands down into the huddle with us and gave us one whiteboard lesson? What would it be? And what, what, what could we learn from them? Today we get to look at a guy that I think every kid loves to look at in, in Sunday school or at home where they get to look at Noah. And who wouldn't love looking at Noah? I mean, you get to play with lions and tigers and all sorts of fun little animals. And if you're a parent, you love it because you get to teach kids when they're really, really young how to count to two. Although Wendy did remind me that as soon as we could, we got rid of our set that looked a lot similar to this because our set had 96 pieces and she didn't like having to keep it all together. And if you couldn't have two animals of everything, then it really ruined it, right? And so you just wanted to get rid of that stress as soon as possible when the kids got older. Cute story, right? But as we become adults, the story of Noah becomes problematic for many of us. It becomes one of these stories that causes us to question it and many other stories in the Bible that are these one-time epic events. So, Let's look at this story today. I've tried to distill it. It's over the space of three chapters, and I've done a lot of summary and taken things out, so we're going to go through it quickly. Genesis 6 is where the story starts, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it goes on to tell how God then talks to Noah and tells him about this plan of how he's going to hit the reset button on all of life and creation. And it goes then into great detail describing to Noah how he's going to build this boat in his front yard. And can you imagine that conversation? I mean, Noah probably hears, I'm going to build a boat. That's okay. That's good. And then God says, no, I mean more like, uh, the equivalent of a World War II aircraft carrier in your front lawn. 
And no, it was probably going 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Okay, so here's one of the, here's one of the weird questions we have about this text as, as adults. We ask the question, would all the animals even fit in the ark, right? Well, I, I was listening to somebody this last week who also was researching this and talking to it, and they said this. They said the largest train ever put together in history was 600 cars. The ark would fit approximately 550 train cars inside of it. And their contention was the Ringling Brothers Circus travels in 56 rail cars, only four of which have animals. They said there's plenty of room to have every animal two by two in this ark that God describes in the Bible. So Noah's told to build this monstrosity in his front yard, and it says this of Noah. It says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Chapter 7, the Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, and then skipping to verse 4, seven days from now I will send rain, and basically says send rain to cover the earth. And then Noah did all that the Lord commanded him, as repeated again. Skipping down to verse 11, it says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heavens were opened. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered to a depth of more than 23 feet. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Then chapter 8 goes on to continue the story. It talks about how the rains stop and the waters recede, and this ten-and-a-half-month boat ride with no drama mean ends. And they get to step out on dry land, dizzy, and the first thing they do is they build an altar to God and worship him. And God responds to their worship saying this, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never Cease, And then it goes on with more of the story in chapter 9. It describes how God brings this beautiful rainbow and says to Noah and all of humanity, this rainbow will always be a reminder of my promise to always provide and care for you and to never do this again. It's an awe-inspiring story, isn't it? And there are well, probably more than two general actions. At least the third one that I have is I don't know why God didn't have them just swat the mosquitoes and a few other bugs instead of having them on the ark, right? And we can think of that. But the two general reactions I think we have as adults to stories like this in the Bible are questioning whether it's real. I mean, really flooded to 23 feet higher than the highest mountain. Mount Everest is 29,029 feet. That means the water was 29,052 feet deep. That means five and a half miles of water deep above the face of the ground that we're normally used to. And the question that comes up is where did all that water come from? And where did all that water go to? And the logical answer seems to be that's a little fantastic. And so a lot of people read this story as a metaphor, like, much like the parables of Jesus put in the Bible to teach us a lesson. But then there are many, and I'm one of them, who tend to go quickly to the question, why are we so quick to reduce the God who created the entire universe down to something that we can comprehend and we can understand and judge as reasonable? 
See, I think Noah is a historically accurate account of an event that occurred. Not just, I think it was passed down accurately through the ages and written down by Moses. And we also see actually other religions and other people groups having threads of this story passed down in much the same way that matches this story. I think confirming the reality of it happening. But beyond that, we can look at it and say, there are actually some really amazing and I think really reasonable scientific and, and uh, even interpretation solutions to those problems of how can the waters have been above Mount Everest. And one of them is, uh, a couple of them are actually centered in plate tectonics theory and atmosphere theory, which, which say that basically there was this cataclysmic plate movement that created the floods. And actually, some would say that the cataclysmic plate movement actually created the height of the mountains we see now, and that before the flood, they were not necessarily that high. And whether you believe that or not, it's based on really sound, proven, accepted, uh, theory about plate tectonics and what happens when plates move and all that kind of stuff. There's also an interpretation theory of this that says uh, that's called the universal flood theory. And that basically says that the flood was as big as it needed to be to accomplish God's intended purpose and that everybody's perception of it is as it was recorded here. And what they basically are saying is that it's, it's contingent on the idea that at the time of the flood, humanity was concentrated in a fairly small regional area and this was some major catastrophic regional flood that to Noah's perception, who was far enough away from the really big mountains if they existed back then, he would not have seen those mountains and he would have thought everything was covered to 23 feet deep. So what Noah's account is reality to what he experienced, even though there may have been mountains a thousand miles away that were not covered. And there's all sorts of theories like that. Regardless of those, setting those aside, we can talk about the fact that we can trust the God of the Bible. We can trust the God who created the universe more than we can trust reasoned, attempt, reasoned attempts to fit God in the box of what's comfortable to us. Setting that aside, though, what is the whiteboard lesson that I think Noah would give us? And I think it comes down to one lesson, one lesson that's expressed in God's character and one lesson that extends itself into how we practice faith on a daily basis. So let's look at God's character at first. See, to me, at first glance, when I read this account and when I hear many people talk about this account of Noah, we look at it and we see God as this angry and vengeful God wiping out all of humanity and all of creation that exists. And, and that doesn't sit well with us. And I think some of that comes because we read this on black and white a little bit like we read somebody's email sometimes and we miss entirely the tone that God has in it. Isaiah 54, 8 through 10 actually describes Isaiah's tone, or Noah's tone in the flood, or God's tone in the flood, sorry, I'll get it right here, describes God's character in the flood as that of unfailing love, as the God who puts up with evil far beyond any patience level that we would ourselves ever think is reasonable and does everything possible unfailingly to save and yet at some point there are consequences. God exhausts every possible way. And imagine the description in, in this Noah story. The description is such that if we put it in our own words, it would be like thinking that any one of us, if we were to ever step out the door of our house, were in real imminent threat of being robbed, abused, raped, whatever. 
Imagine living like that instead of seeing it on your news all day long. Because that's what this text describes evil of as in the day of Noah. The New Testament also interprets Noah for us and talks about Noah. And it's interesting because it always talks about Noah in the context of judgment. One example we'll read is Luke 17. It starts off this way. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, what they're asking Jesus here is, when will the full blessing of God come? Jesus replied saying this, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say that here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And what Jesus is doing is making a really important point for us to understand. We can look all around for what the kingdom is going to be. We can look to all these great people. We can hear all these stories for what of healing and whatever God's doing over all around the world. But Jesus is saying, you miss the point when you look at that because I am at work in your midst every day. In simple things and great things, my kingdom is already at work. You need to look in your midst. And Jesus goes on and describes how the kingdom will become very clear to us, how we won't have to worry about understanding it being there. But then he says this. He says, but first he, and, and because of what I took out, you don't understand. Jesus is talking about himself by using the word he. He says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What Jesus is saying is the tone of God in judgment is the first. I must pay the price for your sin. Judgment cannot and will not come until I, God, have done all I can possibly do to save you. And then Jesus goes in the very next verse and interprets Noah for us. And he says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. And he's painting this picture of life going along as normal. People are getting married or going to work, coming home from work or doing the chores around the house. We're looking for love, trying to find it. And, the, and it's just the normal life. Everything's going along normally up until the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. What I want you to catch as I'm talking about all this is God's tone in judgment is not one of rejecting anger. It's actually of sorrow, of deep grief, a grief that we have a hard time even understanding the level of that grief. And it motivates him to be so patient, to take extreme patient measures to save us we see Jesus even inviting us to live in this same kind of love when he, and the same kind of tone and character when he invites us in Matthew 5. He says this, he says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of, that you may be like your Father in heaven. That's who he is. That's his tone. He causes his son, in other words, he causes his kindness and provision to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's generous. He's kind. He's patient. That's his tone. But then Paul actually comments on God's intent in that generous kindness. He says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Have you ever watched someone in life go through chance after chance after chance to take an opportunity to grow 
and change. And they mistook the patience and the kindness and the work of other people around them. And they took it for granted. They took the kindness and the opportunity for granted and they never seized the moment to make that change. So we can make the mistake of thinking that God's kindness is never going to end, that his patience is always going to be there because it feels good. It gives us room to fail. The patience is there. But even in our disobedience, there's this demand, in a sense, from the kindness that demands us to respond to God. We assume the safety net is there and life is normal and we miss the intent of God's kindness to lead us to him. See, we have plenty of patient opportunity to make a decision to follow Jesus. But the text, the story of Noah and even Jesus' words and Paul's words are saying at some point when life is going along normally, the end does come. See, we don't like the harshness of the end. We don't like the weeping and gnashing of teeth and all the stuff that goes along with that. And I get that. I understand that. All of us, none of us like that. But our society tries to solve that by saying, well, let's go to universalism. Everybody gets to save. There's an easy pass. But that's not biblical reality. In fact, even those who would argue for universal salvation, they don't actually want that themselves because what they're arguing for is a world without consequences. And frankly, we may not want consequences for ourselves sometimes in our own self-centeredness. We don't like that. It doesn't feel good. We may not want that. But we do not want to live, none of us want to live in a world without consequences. And what do we see? What do we want? We really want what we see in God's character in the flood and in Jesus. We want a God who's not motivated to punish, but a God who wants to save us, who does all he can, who even sends his own son to die on our behalf to save us, who demonstrates patience and generosity beyond anything we ever think is reasonable. So when we view stories like Noah's or other stories in the Bible and we think, wow, this doesn't fit with God's kindness, then we have to ask ourselves, since God is loving and patient and kind and gracious in all of his ways, beyond anything we can imagine, when you see something in Scripture or when you see something in life that doesn't match up to that, you need to assume you either don't have enough information or you don't see his perspective on things. So that's God's character. How does Noah's story teach us about that character and the way it lives, is lived out in our faith on a daily basis? How many of you have ever been in a particularly inspiring church service or maybe a motivational seminar at work some, from some motivational speaker that you've heard and you walked away from that wanting to change something? Maybe you went to uh, a retreat and you walked away feeling like God had invited you and you're really challenged to, to go home and, and, and do something different with your spiritual habits of reading the Bible or prayer or, or creating room in your life because you work too hard, you never even create room in your life for God to speak to you. So you, you walked away inspired to go home and do that and create that kind of room. Or, or maybe you felt like God had spoken to you about stopping a behavior in your life, getting rid of a behavior that was unhealthy and destructive to you or your relationship and you walked out of that inspiring time saying, yes, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. Or maybe you walked out convinced that you needed to pay more attention to your marriage or your family and you knew you needed to make some apologies and those apologies weren't going to be easy and those apologies needed to be followed up by some changes in behaviors and habits and have to walk it out. But you, you walk away from those times inspired, you walk away from them determined to do something, to change something. You're on a mission. 
And then after a few weeks, you know, we've all experienced this, right? You, you just, you don't keep up with the prayer. You don't, you, something happens and you have a fight in that relationship and it's really difficult and it's really discouraging and you're not making headway. And gradually that new dream you picked up, that new behavior that you picked up to do drops by the wayside happens all the time when we have dreams in life, doesn't it? Noah's life gives us a powerful picture of the kind of faith it takes to realize any dream, especially a big dream, and how that relates to the normalcy of life. You see, God told, me, told Noah, build this aircraft carrier-sized boat in your front yard, and Noah's response was what? The text says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. It's the most understated, concisely put reality I think ever written. I mean, think about it. In a day where there were no power tools, no steam power, no no electric powered tools, that meant Noah had to go cut down the tree and by hand shave those trees into every single board, every single beam he was going to use. And it took him nearly a hundred years of day after day doing what the Lord commanded him. Board by board, by board, by sliver causing board, can you imagine six months in, the jo- neighbors are go- making jokes, and two years in, they've actually got a branded cartoon in the local newspaper called Noah Non Sequitur Comic, and then te- ten years in, YouTube is just overrun by caustic, hilarious humor about Noah. I mean, this is really the reality of his experience. But the Hall of Fame chapter in the Bible, Hebrews 11, says this about faith and about Noah, and it says, without faith, it is impossible To please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And then it goes on to the very next verse and says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, things that he wouldn't see for a hundred years, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. I think Noah has a lot to tell us about what faith in daily action looks like, doesn't he? to achieve a big vision. Noah trusted God's word, his intent, and his power. And there's a guy named Brent Schumacher. He's a singles pastor at North Point who I think, uh, I'm going to borrow a phrase from him. He says, the lesson of Noah is the lesson of the space between the board and the boat. It's how do we live out our faith in that space between the board and the boat. And some of it comes down to the fact that we oftentimes think that faith is just believing. Believing in a dream and it'll all pan out, right? But that's just wishful thinking. That's not biblical faith. It's not the Noah kind of faith. No, faith becomes faith when there's action associated with it, when there's obedience to it. And Wendy made me promise that I would say, this is really bad writing. So this is really bad writing. Can we just laugh at that and enjoy that and then enjoy the bad writing for the rest of the service? Why does there have to be action with faith? Well, let's look back at the definition of faith in Hebrews 11, 1 we read last week. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for. And it's the assurance about what we do not see yet. Faith is the kind of confidence and assurance that motivates us to actively pursue daily what is not yet a reality. 
For Noah, that meant a confidence of day by day, day after day, season after season, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, getting up each day and shaping one more tree to a board and fitting that one more board into place and nailing it in place, board by board, to move the dream from board to boat. For you, what does that look like? Maybe it looks like praying day after day for God to touch your spouse or your kids or your parents or your children. Or the, and maybe it looks like the persistence, obedient, obedience of a habit of responding kindly, even when you responded to negatively by someone, even when somebody else doesn't go along with you. I mean, nobody else went along with Noah, right? Even his family at times wasn't real on board, but yet his faith saved his family. And in spite of nobody else responding to him, he still, board by board, day after day, got up and did what he could do. And sometimes that's what it looks like for each of us. We may not get that response of love or that response of care from the person around us, and yet God asks us each day, get up and be obedient to responding in the way he wants us to respond that day to them, regardless of whether it's returned or not. And sometimes those things are really big and really difficult, and they seem like they're never going to happen because we have those responses in some of those relationships or some of those dreams. They go for years. Can you imagine how overwhelming the ark could have been to Noah? I mean, to think about the fact that this is going to take me 100 years to build, and then once I get it built, how in the world am I ever going to get all the animals there? I mean, even if God helps me get this built before I die, how am I going to get all the animals in the boat? Maybe God has called you to transform the way education is done or to transform your workplace into something different. And what that means is day by day you get to go in and work with one more student, one more employee, one more teacher, and you just, day after day, it's one more board that you get to lay each and every day. Maybe it's patiently training your children to be responsible and studious, and that just gets tedious, doesn't it? I mean, some days you just wish they'd learn it, right? And do it on their own. And it just means you get up and you patiently take that one board each day. Maybe it's running those same month-end reports over and over again for years. Faithfully doing the little things so that you have the credibility in the relationship. That when your coworker's life is hit with disaster, you're there to care and be Jesus to them in that moment. From board to boat. What does that mean for Quest? For Quest, it means we do the next thing. It means it means we volunteer for the children's ministry next Sunday, or we become an usher, greeter, or we or we invite the person that we know uh, throughout the week to come to our small group, or to come to an event, or come to the parenting class. If there's a friend that you know that's struggling in parenting, invite them to come to that. Or maybe it's just encouraging a new leader and multiplying a new leader. Or maybe it's praying. What are the habits that God wants to do? to get us to where he wants us to be. Today I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and I haven't been comfortable enough to do this for a long time, but I feel like I should do it today. So I'm going to spend just a a couple moments here because I think it it relates to this message well, clarifying some vision for who we are as Quest. I've told you a lot in the past about some of the dreams that God shared in uh, bringing Wendy and I from a really good job and a really great life in Oregon to Ohio, and we're so glad we followed him here. Today, I want to tell you a little bit more about some of those dreams and some of the ways that the vision of this church 
from history before I even came here match my calling as well because I think it shapes who we are. And why do I want to tell you this? I want to tell you because I think God wants me to tell you. I want to tell you because I think, I want, I think God wants you to know and own the dream before it becomes a reality so that when it becomes a reality, our faith is, all of our faith gets to grow because we see what God's doing in it. And I think it relates really well to this Noah lesson today about faith. November 2008, uh, actually June, June, July of 2008 is when I first interviewed here. And uh, come November 2008, hadn't really made any progress, weren't really go, nothing was really happening. And my job out there was going fantastic. I was loving it and it was growing and great opportunities. And so I was considering actually withdrawing my name from even considering coming to Quest. And about the time I was wrestling through that one night, I had a, a really vivid dream from God in which I had a second interview, and the interview was positive. And then about a week later, Phil, who was head of the search committee, called and said, we're going to have a second interview. And it was kind of one of those quick rewards to hearing God's voice and going, that was God's voice, and it was kind of cool, right? One thing I haven't told you from that dream that was also a part of that that I've told very few people was that in that dream, God made it very, very vividly clear that Quest would be at least 800 in size. Now, what does that mean? We're not there. What it means is what I'd really like to actually do right now is have you look to the right and left of you, and I'd like you to see sitting next to you your five, the people who are unchurched, the people who are disillusioned with church, who you're praying for on a regular basis, sitting there. And what I'd like you to see, because the reality for me is I could care less. If you know me well, I could care less of whether we're a church of 800 or 5,000 or 500. All I really care about is that God's life is being instilled in people, that they're experiencing salvation, that they're experiencing healing, that marriages and families are stronger because we exist and they know God and God is involved in their relationships and making those areas stronger. And as long as we're vibrant and, and doing God's mission, I could care less how big we are. But God has spoken specifically about 800 and said that that's going to be at least the size we are. And that means next to each and every one of you is going to be at least two people who are not here yet, who, when you listen to their stories, are going to be, are going to be able to tell you how God saved them, how God restored their marriage in the midst of, uh, of infidelity or addiction or other things that are going on in their life, how God took their kids and made their lives better. And you're going to get to see those kinds of stories. And I want us to be able to start praying for and believing that each one of us who are here are going to be a part of God doing that. The second part that I, have never, that I haven't really said before for you. I've said this portion of it. In 1987, one of the, I had a, an encounter with God that was one of the most uh, distinctive encounters with God I've ever had in my life. And in it, he said that part of at least the distinctive of my ministry was going to be the starting of new churches, church planting, which is the church lingo for starting churches from scratch. At that point, I had no idea that that was even necessary outside of the far reaches of Africa or India. I just never even thought it was a reality. But since I've gone on to learn that the reality in American church right now is that only 1% of churches in America grow by evangelism at a rate faster than population growth. We were actually one of those churches last year 
Thank you for praying. Thank you for inviting. We grew by, through evangelism last year by greater than population growth. And I want to be that way every year. We need to continue to pray and ask God and trust him that he wants to be that way through us. But here, here's the truth of that. What about those 99, other 99% of churches in America? What that means is those other 99% of churches in America aren't even reaching or keeping their own kids. And God has called us to be excellent in caring for and discipling children and youth and families. And I want to invite us to continue to pursue that dream. 85% of churches in America are declining, and a vast majority of them will be dead in 20 years without significant change. Our call at Quest has to do with being really healthy in our relationships being friends to each other who care deeply and being friends, not antagonists, not arguers, but friends to those who don't believe, having really healthy relationships and being excellent at caring for and discipling and raising great kids and great youth. And I'm so grateful that so many of you have bought into that and so many of you are part of that. And I just encourage us to keep growing in that because board by board, we've got a long ways to go, but board by board, we are going from board to boat. God has given us an arc-sized vision to be larger than we are and to multiply churches. And some of us may feel like, oh, that's a, that may seem really far off. And hopefully it's not 100 years off. But I remember thinking in 1992 already that this dream of God for my life was a far way off. I mean, I hadn't pastored, I hadn't planted, I barely knew anything about it because back when I felt that call, there weren't even any books written on church planning for the American context. I took a master's course and I had to create the course because there was nothing written on it for America, the American context. That, that, That tells you how old I am, right? But in 1992, just doing the normal things God sets before you, taking the board that's set before you. I was asked to start a counseling ministry. Then I was asked to do small groups. And then I was asked to do some other stuff and do internships. And a lot of that was very mundane. It just meant you have another lunch, you do another phone call, you pray for another person, you design another training. Just what's the board of that day? It's a lot of it's just very mundane. And God kept bringing board after board and after board. And before I knew it, through my leadership, 50, 50 new churches and uh, that I had significant influence on and probably another 50 that I had touched in some way. Just board after board. I'm not capable to do that. You're not capable to do a lot of the stuff that God has called you to. Some of it is overwhelming and some of it you feel fearful over and you haven't engaged it. You've dropped that board because you feel like I can't succeed at that board. I can't do that one. And God's calling today is to pick that board back up. Because faith is confidence. Faith is assurance. Not in you, not in your abilities, but in the promise of God for your life. And that kind of faith leads to day by day picking up the next board, whatever that is. doesn't have to be anything great. So much of life is so normal, so ordinary. And unless we can get our faith into our ordinary, normal life, We don't reach the dreams God wants us to have. 
And that's the lesson of Noah today. What are the boards of obedience in your life that you've picked up in the past? That because you felt a, a stirring of God and you said, I'm going to be better in this. This is something that this is me. This is who I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to go. This is the difference I'm going to make. This is the change I'm going to make in my own life. What are those boards that you've picked up that because of whatever reasons, fear, anxiety, frustration, however long it's taken, or just the ordinary day-to-day pressure and busyness of life that you've let drop by your feet and you haven't picked up? Was it your finances? Did you feel like God inspired you to get your budget in order and get your finances in order so that you'd have peace in your marriage and you have peace in your, in your relationships and, and you wouldn't be always living on the edge of anxiety over that and you'd, you'd have things right? Or was it, or was it inspiration by God for you to, to tithe and to be generous as he asks you to be, which you really want to be? I mean, when we ask the survey question on a regular basis, 85% of people want to give a tithe or more of their life. We all are motivated to be generous. But maybe you pick that board up and it didn't go so well. And God's asking you to pick it up again. Maybe, maybe it's prayer. Maybe God's inspired you in some of the messages in the past or some of the moments in the past to, to be willing to pray for your friends and your family. And so that when they actually come to you, or maybe a coworker comes to you with a need, that you actually take the moment to pray in that moment with them to make space and allow room for God to show up. And some of you may have picked those boards up and, and you ran with it and you prayed for people several times and maybe multiple times and you didn't see the answers you wanted. You didn't see the presence of God in the way you wanted to see it. So you've let that board drop. Did you know that John Wimber, the guy who actually founded the Vineyard Movement, of the last century, he probably had maybe close to the most actual documented miracles that they inspected by doctors and other people. But he himself would tell you it took 500 boards before he had his first healing. 500 people he prayed for before he saw the first healing. Are we willing to pick those boards up that God has called us to over and over And over again, one board at a time, creating room and space for God to be there. Maybe that board for you was inspiration at a time where you went, I need to open up to some other people about this destructive thing going on in my life, about this struggle I'm having in my life. Because you probably heard a verse like James 5.16 that says, Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. And you said, I want to be healed, so I'm going to be open And I'm going to be honest with somebody. And you started to, and you went so far, and then you dropped it. Maybe that board has to do with your family. And God challenged you and said you need to set some boundaries on your work so that you're home more. Or or you need to, you know, relate to your kids or relate to your spouse in a different way. Maybe you need to go to the parenting class to be successful at that and you haven't made the time to do that. Maybe you need to go to counseling and you haven't made time to do that. All of us need counseling in our life. All of us need people to help us in that way. What is it that you haven't done that God asked you to do that you've let drop by the wayside? Maybe maybe it's serving. Maybe it's serving here in the children's ministry or as a small group leader or maybe it's serving in the PTO or another organization in the community that God's called you to be a part of, warm 
And you just looked at it and gone, I don't know how I'd fit that in. So you looked at the board, you were inspired by God as a step of obedience, and you just, you just never either picked it up or, or you let it drop before you even got there. Maybe it's, maybe it's your work. Maybe you've got a dream for your work. Maybe you're, maybe you've settled into a routine in a place of comfort and God's asked you to stretch yourself and start a new business or to take on a new role and, and it's been too much and you haven't done it. What's the next board that God wants you to pick up? To put in place as he develops the dream for you and the dream he has for your difference making for him in this world. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. What are the next boards he wants us together as Quest to pick up and put in place as he builds the dream here for us reaching the people of our community and multiplying churches as he has promised? See, faith that is convinced in what is unseen daily, obediently takes the next step. Faith without obedience is just simply wishful thinking. For some of you, I suspect that maybe... The next step of faith is you publicly declaring your commitment to Jesus as as a follower of Jesus. You've been hanging around church. You've been hanging around here for a while. You you like the idea of Jesus. You're pretty convinced, but you've never really taken that step of making a public decision and declaration that I am all in with my life and God. And I would recommend that you consider picking that board up if you know that's the board that God's handed you and you've dropped. Because here's the thing about our dreams and the promises God has. They are built board by board, one board at a time, simple steps, simple decisions, daily actions that express our confidence in the promise of God, our confidence in who he is to us and what he's called to do. Think about it for just a minute. Some of you probably already had things come to mind that you know this is a board, this is a board that I've been hesitant to pick up, or this is a board that I picked up in the past and it's dropped by the wayside. I'm going to ask you for a physical response today, because I think physical response helps us engage with God. I'm going to ask you to imagine that you're picking up that board and just hold it above your head. Nobody needs to know what that board is. You know what it is. God knows what it is. Just pick it up, hold it above your head, and let's pray. And let me pray for you, but as I'm praying, you respond to God with your own words in a similar way. Lord, we just ask that you'd come now by your spirit and that you would lead each one of our thoughts to that next step, that next board. Lord, we declare our trust in your promises. We declare our trust in your good call over each and every one of our lives, that you have an excellent, good plan for each and every one of us. Do you have a good plan for our work? Do you have a good plan for our family? Do you have a good plan for our friendships? Do you have a good plan for our church? And that you've designed something that is even beyond our own imagination that we can't even comprehend. You've got arc-sized things for each one of us to be engaged in, to build individually and together. And Lord, now our hands raised before you, we just ask that you would help us daily to express our faith, not trying to merit anything. It's our faith in your promise, not in our ability to accomplish this.
but to express our faith daily by doing what you set before us. No matter how simple that is, no matter how mundane that is, no matter how big it is, Lord, we give you our fears, we give you our discouragement. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come now, that you would invade this place, invade the hearts of everyone here with a sense of clarity. Come, Holy Spirit. Some of you God has spoken to even fairly specifically about uh, praying for healing in others. And because you haven't seen it like you want it, you've stopped picking that board up. And God's inviting you to pick it up again and to do it and to trust him. And he's going to show you those miracles. Some of you are really discouraged um, in your marriage. And frankly, you're not so discouraged, you're not so discouraged about, about your spouse as you are discouraged about yourself. You feel like you can't pick up your board well enough to be good enough in your marriage. And God's just saying, I've got that dream for you. I've got that dream for you. I've promised that dream for you. Just pick up your board and receive my presence and my peace. Just pick up the board today. Pick it up tomorrow. If you drop it, pick it up again. If you drop it, just pick it up again. doesn't matter how many times you drop it. Just pick it up again. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd bring healing to the marriages. Pray that you'd bring hope. For those who dream of marriage and aren't married, Lord, I pray that you'd bring your sense of peace there. To just pick up each day what you give in relationships and to enjoy and be satisfied in the good gift you give today and tomorrow. Continue to interact with God on that throughout the songs. And, uh, and I want to encourage you to come and enjoy receiving communion. It's just a reminder of his promise to you. A reminder of how far he goes for you. To save you. To be real to you. And to lead you to the dreams he has. He gave even his life for you. And he gives you his life today. Come and receive communion as we continue to worship. If there is a board you felt like God is asking you to pick back up, then good job picking it back up. But I want you to go one step further. I want you to tell somebody about that board. And I want you to ask somebody to pray for you. Now, you can do that with a friend right now here. You can do it with somebody who will be down front after service if you want. But don't just let it stand as a silent commitment between you and God. Let somebody else in on that. Let them pray for you.
Lord, I pray that you would bless each and every person here. Lord, you have placed so many beautiful callings in this room. Every single person you have a beautiful calling for, a beautiful promise. And together, we together, you have given us a beautiful, community-changing, life-changing promise that we get to be part of something you are doing. And Lord, I ask that this week you'd help each one of us find the joy and find the ability to express our faith through that daily picking up whatever you set before us. Just day after day, Lord. And thank you that you are building the ark in each one of our lives. Lord, we give that dream to you. We declare our trust into you. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and empower us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.